Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I am your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Barrett Martin, the second half of our two-part married couple double header. And to add to the special nature of today's episode, we have a guest host, another member of the Light team, Jim Lane. Before joining Light, Jim worked at Sony Music's Legacy Recordings for nearly a decade, where he developed his relationship with Barrett Martin. And Barrett's probably best known from his tenures drumming for the seminal Seattle rock bands Screaming Trees, Mad Season, and Skin Yard. Barrett's also a Grammy-winning percussionist, composer, and producer who has performed on over 100 albums and film soundtracks. Photo Zen for over 20 years. He sits down with Jim to discuss his new book, a collection of 35 short stories titled The Way of the Zen Cowboy, Fireside Stories from a Globetrotting Rhythmatist, as well as the book's companion double album, Songs of the Firebird, from the Barrett Martin Group. Enjoy the discussion. So how you doing? It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing uh, very well. Um, let's see. I mean, so much to talk about, which we probably will. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, we're my wife and I are we're really good. We're here in Santa Fe till March because I'm working on the uh, documentary film about C. Dale Davis, the last living blues man that I did three albums and multiple shows and tours. And we're we're finally in edit mode and we're cutting it together and it's looking amazing. But the director lives here in New Mexico, so that's why that's why we're here in Santa Fe. Got you. Um, I know something about that process, so I understand, uh, you know, <laughs> the length of the journey and what it takes to get there. Yes. Well, and, and I lived in New Mexico for almost a decade when I went to undergrad and graduate school at the University of New Mexico. So this is, you know, my second home. I, I love it here. I love the desert. I've always felt this very special thing with New Mexico. It's, and it's New Mexico in particular, you know, it's not Arizona. It's not Texas. Well, I mean, I like Texas too. My wife is from Texas, you know, so, but it's like the Southwest. There's just this cool cowboy thing down here. And I've, I've always liked that. And it just resonates in my heart. That's great, man. And that came through in the book. Um, you know, I wanted to get things rolling. I, I, this could be off the record if you want, but I wanted to ask you about Lanigan's book and if you had read it, because I, oh, read, yeah, yeah. I yeah. read it when it came out and uh, it kind of blew my mind. I didn't realize uh, kind of the depths of, you know, the addiction that he had sank into and what the internal problems with the band were. And um, some of the passages in there were just harrowing, you know, when he's yeah. kind of going through Europe and, you know, I, I was so in, in, ingrained in it that I felt like I needed a, a fix. <laughs> and I just was like, wow, this is, this is really something. I didn't realize you guys were dealing with that stuff. And I will say this, he dishes it out to himself as much as he dishes it out to everyone. But yeah. when you kind of entered the story, I said, oh, man, if he has a, a negative word to say about Barrett, it's going to piss me off. But he, you seem to be spared. It seemed like you guys had a pretty good relationship. But I was just wondering what you thought of his book in general. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to come. It doesn't have to be off the record because okay, sure. I've been asked that question, you know, a few times since that book came out. I think Mark is a, a really great writer and he sent me some passages from the book when he was writing it, you know, to just, you know, see it. Cause he, he asked me if I could remember some things and, sure. or how, how I remembered them. And so I wrote, you know, what I remembered. And then he, it was funny. He wrote some stuff back to me that I didn't remember and I have a pretty good memory. So 
he remembered some things and I remembered some things and, and uh, I totally approved of what, what he wrote about me, what I saw. Um, but I think he's a great storyteller. And um, I read the whole book in a day and a half. And, and uh, see, the thing is, is like, I, I remember most of that stuff because I was in the band and, and with him and aware of what was happening. Some, some of it, you know, I, I didn't know uh, to such detail. Sure. But most of the stuff I, I knew about, you know, I mean, we all did, you know, we were a, a small but up and coming band. So we were around each other all the time. You know, we were aware of, you know, pretty much what, what everybody was doing. And uh, so after I read the book, I, I, uh, I talked with it, you know, we email from time to time, but we actually talked on the phone this time. And I said, man, I, I loved your book. You know, you're, you're an amazing storyteller. And as awful as some of the stories are, I found myself laughing out loud and I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to be like, like, like I didn't understand, you know, the, the suffering you're going through, but the way you wrote it was, you know, was kind of funny. And, and he, he, he said, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I wanted to show that there was, you know, some humor in the darkness, you know, and he, he has that ability to write like that, to give it, it's a harrowing tale, but there's some, moments of levity and and he's very self-deprecating about it too so he sure is. I, I really i really loved it and that he came out on the other side and seems to be a healthy and uh he's certainly functioning he puts out more records than anybody i i know <laughs> oh yeah he's got incredible creative streak just album after album and you know he told me he's working on another book i don't know what it's about he just told me he was outlining a book and so anyway i i just kudos to him for uh you know, telling the story and continuing to be. What's cool about Lanigan is that he has invented this way of being a very unique solo artist. Uh, you know, like that. It, it's like a sound that he's developed that works perfectly with his voice. So rather than trying to sound like somebody else and try to like chase somebody else's trend, he created his own trend. You know, and that that's that's what a great artist does is they create the sound that works with their voice. Yeah, he's a fascinating character, phenomenal singer, just a great artist. Before oh yeah, one of, one of the great singers of our generation, for, for sure. Before you ever met Lanigan or any of the Seattle crew, um, how did you start drumming? Where did you start drumming? When did you start drumming? Uh, well, I've got kind of the similar backstory, like a lot of drummers I started as a kid. I, I was nine or 10 years old, I think my dad got me a snare drum for Christmas one year. So I started with just a snare drum and then, you know, maybe like within a year or two years, I mean, I can't remember. I was a kid, but he, he got me this old drum set that was, that he got at a garage sale. And it was just like a really old rickety had a bass drum and one Tom Tom and a, a cymbal. And so then I start, and then I added that to with my snare drum. So now I had kind of a, what, you know, what would be like a really basic jazz drum set. And I played that for years and years in the hayloft of our barn because I grew up out in the country, out, out kind of on a homestead. And uh, the hayloft was where I could just bash away for as long as I wanted to. And then, you know, as I went through junior high and high school, I played the drum sets that the school had. Um, but, you know, I came from a very modest working class family we you know I, I didn't have my own drum set till I was in high school so I just used the drums that were at the junior high and then 
the high school had a drum set and I was always playing in the jazz bands, you know, like back then the high schools and even the junior high had a, had a jazz choir and a jazz band. And so I was, you know, always the drummer in that. And I just kind of played all through high school, got better and better, and then got a scholarship to college. So I went, I went to school in, um, it was like, you know, the, the mid 1980s, I went to a Washington state college that had a really good jazz program. So that, that was kind of like my formal music education. And then, of course, that went on to graduate school when I studied ethnomusicology and things like that. Sure. And then, you know, in the book, by the way, the, the book title, The Way of the Zen Cowboy, Fireside Stories from a Globetrotting Rhythmatist. I, I think one of the better decisions you ever made in your life was to really bust your tail uh, one summer working double shifts, triple shifts to save up to study abroad. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was when I was still an undergraduate and I, uh, I did, um, yeah, I had, I had two jobs where I was a, a bus boy at a hotel during the um, kind of the, the afternoon and evening shift, but it was a full, you know, it was like an eight hour shift and it was, it was full time and sometimes with overtime. So it was, you know, at least eight hours a day. And sometimes it was nine, 10. There were many times when I worked 12 hour shifts um, because we had to like set up the, the hotel for banquets and, and, you know, all that stuff. I, I, I guess big hotels still do that, but this was like the 1980s and I, it was a thing. Like everybody would do these banquets at these hotels. So I would do that. Then I'd go home. At two o'clock in the morning, I'd sleep for, you know, like three hours. I'd get up at 5 a.m. And then my day job is I worked at an explosives factory making industrial high explosives. How do you, how do you get that job? Like, what well, my, that's what my dad did. It, oh. it was the company that my dad worked for. And he just got me a job there. But I mean, I got like the grunt job, $5 an hour working on the assembly line, you know, making, you know, extremely high I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they, you know, I don't know the chemistry of the explosives like that. That was left to a PhD chemist that that, you know, had like a secret room where he made the explosives. But I just worked on the assembly line where we packaged it and then we'd load it on a pallet. And then I would drive the forklift and load the pallet into the semi truck that was taking it to the mine or the quarry or because it was that kind of explosives, you know, for like building roads, you know, mining blasting gravel in a quarry that kind of stuff so yeah that was uh and then and then when i when i'd have breaks from from college i would just i would go and 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 do both jobs and and just work all the time that i wasn't in school and so i saved money to go uh to europe and study actually i went to europe to study theater um and not because i wanted to be an actor but it was a program where we could study theater and music and see how it was done on the global stage. And in this case in Europe. So how long were you over there for? It was just a semester, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even a, a full year, but I mean, you know, that's, it's a long enough period of time to get a good dose of, cause every day we were going to plays in London and at the Shakespeare, uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, which is where the Shakespeare, um, the great British actors are trained. So we saw all of these incredible British actors doing theater productions like Anthony Hopkins and Jeremy Irons and all these like legendary actors. But then we also saw a lot of classical music and uh, 
some really incredible uh, modern, uh, what they call new music performances. And I, I saw Andre Segovia, the great classical guitarist, um, you know, probably the greatest classical guitarist of all time at Royal Albert Hall. And then he died like two months later. So I saw one of his final performances. When did you end up going to Italy? Uh, well, I went to Italy the first time on that same trip okay. and, uh, and saw, you know, because that was part of the program. We started in Italy and then worked our way across Europe and then ended in London, you know, to study all this theater stuff. Uh, and then, of course, I, I played Italy, a, a, you know, dozens and dozens of times with all the bands that I played in. It's one of the greatest countries to play because the fans are, are so just like way into music. So it's like the, the best country to play. Like Italy and Brazil are, are totally the funnest countries to play music in. One of my uh, favorite stories in the book was uh, involving how you broke into the Colosseum in Rome. <laughs> yeah. Recount that for us here. Well, I mean, we didn't really, we didn't break anything. We just, it was closed for renovations. Turn of phrase. So, yeah. So, so me and three of my friends that were also uh, in this program studying music and theater, we just climbed over the incredibly dangerous spiked fence that goes around the Coliseum. It's still there because I saw it a few years ago when I was there on tour uh, with, with a band that, you know, when we played in Rome. And uh, it's this just like 10 foot high gothic spiked fence that we had to gingerly climb over the top. And then we just, you know, walked through the Coliseum with nobody in there in the middle of the night. And then the guards spotted us and it became this like total chase through the Coliseum where we just were sprinting in almost pitch darkness down these corridors and, uh, you know, catacombs of the, of the Roman Coliseum. And they're like yelling at us. And, you know, there's like flashlights bouncing off the walls. And, and we, uh, we, we got, we made our way back to the fence and climbed over the fence and just sprinted, you know, back to, back to our hotel, which was not too far away. But I mean, this was in 1987. I mean, that's, a lot, that's like 35 years ago. That's a long time ago. Wow. I mean, you probably gave the guards. I've, I've, never, I've never outrun the cops before, except in, in Rome, I was able to do it. <laughs> Incredible. The, the guards of the Coliseum, nonetheless. Probably the best tour you, that uh, anyone's ever had of the Coliseum, I would say, on your own terms. And... Yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing because there was nobody in there. I mean, it was just the four of us walking around, you know, like where the, we were like totally where the gladiators were, you know, um, spooky, but, you know, I don't know. We were, we were uh, ambitious young men at the time. So it's pretty great. Um, I wanted to talk to you about the title of the book, The Way of the Zen Cowboy. Uh, what is Zen? How do you define Zen? What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, I'll just give you the, the short answer because the, the, paradox of Zen is the more you try to explain what it is, the more it's like trying to like hold on to sand in a fist and it just slips through your fingers and you, you know, you can't define it, but it's a spiritual practice. I've been doing it uh, really since the mid 1990s. So um, over 25 years now, I studied with a, a very traditional Zen master in Los Angeles and uh, she was, is, she's still alive. She's still teaching there. Um, her name is uh, the Reverend Dr. Yuko Conniff. She was a former uh, medical doctor. 
who realized that she had more effect on healing people by teaching them how to meditate and how to recognize how the mind manifests reality. So uh, that's essentially what Zen is, is learning how to master and control the mind and realizing the connection between mind and reality and realizing that you are manifesting everything that happens to you and you are part of this, this great oneness, which that's the paradox of it, right? Everybody talks about, you know, it's all one thing, but yet I'm sitting here looking at a computer screen and you're, you know, I think in New York on the other side of the country, also looking at a computer screen. So we see separate entities, but yet, you know, we're, we're having this conversation. So the best way to explain Zen is to say, it's not two things. It's one thing with, with separate manifest, manifestations. I'm Barrett Martin, you're Jim Lane, but we're part of this thing that we're co-creating together. I think that's a pretty good explanation of what Zen is, you know, and it's, it's, it's just, an, it's, it's very, very ancient. We're using the Japanese word for it, Zen, but it goes back to China. It goes back to India. It's, it's all over the world. It just manifests in different cultures under different names. You know, during your explanation, it, might, it sparked a few thoughts in my mind. I have two daughters, uh, 10 and 7 years old, and they're always playing and screwing around together. The other night, uh, the little one said to the older one, she's like, you know what? You're seeing me, and I'm seeing you. Like, finally <laughs> dawned on her the perspective thing. I'm always looking at you, but you're always looking at me. And I think that's a, has a little bit to do with what you're, we, we were, you were just saying there. Yeah. But, um, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, I, there was a passage in the book uh, that really fascinated me. Um, I had read a book called uh, The Mind-Body Connection by uh, Dr. Sarno, and it's, uh, it's regarding healing back pain. And the, essentially what it was about is how back pain kind of came out of nowhere at some point in time. Humans didn't com complain about back pain. Um, until I can't remember the year that he cited, but it was X year. And then all of a sudden, all of these surgeries started popping up and prescriptions right. started popping up and um, practices started popping up. And he was saying there isn't a, of course there's slip discs and, and injuries you can have to your back, but general back pain doesn't exist. And he was saying, if you can manage your emotions and manage your mind, your back pain will disappear. Um, it was a fascinating book. And uh, I was reading this um, passage in your book where uh, you were detailing how you were born with a club foot, but didn't realize it until you were 25 years old and then had to um, subsequently go through a few surgeries to correct it. And uh, uh, the pain management that ensued, um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and how it applies to your philosophy of Zen. So yes, I was born with a very mild clubbed foot, not, not like the extreme kind that you see where people are literally walking on the side of their foot. But I, but I had bone deformities in my ankle and in my foot. But I was able to manage, you know, like, you know, I didn't have to wear special shoes or anything, but my left shoe always wore differently. And, and I, you know, you could just tell by looking at my foot that it was just not the same as my right foot. What happened is I broke it really badly when I was 25 in Paris, France. I, I slipped um, from, from, a, from the edge of a wall that I was trying to jump down from and um, just miscalculated and landed right on the ankle and just snapped it right there. So 
And it, it was the last day of a Screaming Trees tour. And we were flying home the next day anyway. So I just, I didn't go to the doctor. I had a couple friends with me, a couple crew guys that helped get me back to the hotel. And then I, um, I just flew home and got home and, and slept for a couple of days because I was jet lagged and exhausted. And then I went to the doctor and they x-rayed it and they were like, yeah, you, you, you've really broken your ankle. And by the way, <laughs> you have like totally deformed bones in your, in your feet and ankle. And, and so it's, it's compounded the injury. So then over the course of the next almost 20 years, I think I, I had three different surgeries to, you know, try to clean out, you know, the, the cartilage and the, the bone fragments. And, 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 you know, for, for a while it, I was okay, but then eventually I was limping so badly and I had so much bone on bone pain. Like when I finally had my ankle fused, there was no cartilage in my ankle and I was literally walking bone on bone. And my surgeon was like, I don't, I don't know how you walked in here. That's like kind of unbelievable. And I said, well, you know, pain's relative. You just kind of get used to it and you somehow the brain manages it. So anyway, I finally had, had surgery. Uh, they fused the ankle. That was the only way they could, they could fix it was to just fuse it all together. And, and it was a, uh, an old friend of mine, he, he's a, he's a ex green beret. And he, he, um, he picked me up at the, at the hospital after, you know, the, the day after my surgery. And I said, you know, I don't really want to take painkillers. I don't want to be on Percocet or Oxycodone. And, you know, I don't want to be like a pill junkie. I, I hate that stuff. I don't like the way it makes me feel. And he just looked at me and he goes, pain is in the mind. And I thought, okay, this guy probably knows a little bit about pain. So so I, uh, I, went, I went back to the house where I was staying and because uh, this, this, this all happened in New Mexico. Um, and uh, I, I did not take a single pain pill in my recovery. Uh, I'd take a couple aspirin every day because they tell you to do that to, you know, to prevent blood clots and things like that. And I just, I just focused on not feeling pain rather than I should be in pain because I just had major surgery and I have half a dozen screws in my ankle and a spike going up from my heel bone up through my shin bone. And, you know, like I should be in excruciating pain, but I just, I thought, you know what, I'm just not going to be in pain. And it, it did still hurt a little bit, but I was able to get through it. And after a few days, the, the pain subsided considerably. And within a couple of weeks, there wasn't very much pain at all. And in a month, I mean, really no pain. So that's just my personal story with pain, you know, like going through multiple surgeries and having metal hardware put in my leg. Cause it, it broke not just the ankle, but my lower leg and it was pretty bad. So, um, you know, I, I can't speak for other people's pain, but it's a relative experience. Obviously some, some people have much higher pain thresholds. Sure. I mean, I just thought it spoke to the, uh, the benefits of the practice more than about, just about as much anything I read in your book. And I was just fascinated. I had surgery recently and I was in severe pain and I needed to take those pills as much as I didn't want sure. to. Yeah. I, I, I really didn't want to. I like you're saying, I don't like the way it makes me feel. I feel hot and sweaty and just general unease. And uh, I don't know, maybe the next time I can approach it. Um, it or if there is, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully there isn't a next time, but the next time maybe I can approach it in a different way. 
Um, well, I, I, it's it's a relative thing, you know. Like one time, I had to have surgery where they had to make an incision in my lower abdomen, and they, uh, you know, they cut through the stomach muscle, and I mean, that was that was really painful. And but I was a young, I was you know, eighteen or nineteen when when that happened, and uh, and in that case, I think yeah, I think I did have to take pain pills because you can't move when they when they cut through your stomach muscle. I mean, you just you can't do anything. So, but. But, you know, in the time since I, you know, was, you know, 18 years old in the time that I was in my 40s when I had to have, you know, this major leg surgery, I had, I'd been learning how to meditate and how to, you know, control my mind. And I, I just kind of made a decision that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So during your explanation of uh, Zen, um, you mentioned that it's a spiritual practice and, um, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading was uh, you, you spoke of this clay pattern um, that it, it occurs in two, three time or three, two time. And oh, yeah. Right. I was wondering if you could um, describe the origin of that. Uh, this goes back to um, that oneness that you were just talking about. Um, it really struck me. I'm, uh, I'm not um, a very religious person. I was raised Catholic, but it, it didn't take, um, <laughs> for lack of a better explanation, which I won't, that's a, that's a whole other podcast that I won't go into here. But the, when I read this, this does strike me and this resonates. And um, I found it fascinating. So I was just wondering if you could speak about it a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, okay. So the, my, my spiritual background is that yeah, I, I was raised, Methodist, you know, my family went to a Methodist church. It's 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 a really mellow uh, form of Christianity, and and uh, I I really liked the church we went to. I loved everybody in the church. It was very it was extremely progressive too, by the way, because this was the 1970s, 1980s, and and uh, Christianity was very progressive about you know human rights and you know protecting people. It was socially you know very ahead of its time. Because Jesus was a total liberal progressive. I mean, he just was. I mean, you can't deny that. His, so, um, so I like that aspect of it. But, you know, as I got older, you know, I didn't, I didn't go to church as much. And then, and then, of course, you know, the dark lord of rock and roll seduced me. And I'm playing, you know, in, in several rock bands. And I'm playing all over the world. And then, you know, I started studying Buddhism. And there's so many parallels between, you know, what Jesus taught and what the Buddhists Taught. I mean, it's the same. It's exactly the same. And, and I found this to be true with um, a lot of indigenous people that I studied with, too, where uh, the, the teachings of their medicine men and medicine women was essentially the same as, as you know, generally as, as Buddhism. And a lot of it is very Zen, actually. And, uh, and you know, they also, you know, have, have, a, have a Christian influence, you know, just by nature of colonialism. So I've always found the universals in things. I think that the great ascended masters like Jesus, like the Buddha, like many of the Zen masters and medicine men and medicine women that were high spiritual practitioners all understood the same principles. They all, they all knew the same things as they applied to their individual cultures. So at one point I realized, you know, drumming is a spiritual practice for you know, many African drummers and, and people in the, in the Caribbean and in Brazil because of the, the huge influence of African spiritual practices and African drumming that was brought to the New World through, through slaves originally. 
Um, and then, but it just kind of took on its own life and, and the syncretism of Catholicism and West African spiritual beliefs gives you things like Santeria and voodoo and candomblé. And, and by the way, voodoo is not, you know, this, this horrible dark religious practice. It's, it's really, it's beautiful the way they've, they've syncretized Catholicism with, with the African saints. So I started to realize that there, you know, there, there's this deep spiritual aspect of drumming in these places. And I just happened to be doing work in those places. I was getting invited to Cuba as a formally as a state department diplomat on a, on a music program called the music bridge. And so I worked with all these Cuban drummers and, you know, learned some of the Santeria rhythms and went to a couple ceremonies. And I saw how beautiful drumming mixed with spiritual practice. Um, and then, and I'd previous to that, I'd spent time in Central America with the Garifuna and I saw how they did a very similar thing. Uh, Garifuna is its own religion. It's, it's similar to like Santeria and Candomblé and uh, where drumming is used, you know, as a, as an engine in the spiritual practice. And then I spent a lot of time in Brazil, you know, months and months at a time working with different musicians down there. And I saw the same thing. So for me, um, I, I think being a drummer, being this, this kind of hybrid, you know, person uh, that's, that's been influenced by Christianity, by Buddhism, by indigenous uh, spiritual practices, I, I just incorporate all of it uh, because I see the universal truth in it. I, that's a long answer. I hope it. A long answer, answer, but I want to specifically and thank you. It's a, it's a it's a great answer, and uh, there's a lot to unpack there. That by the way, that's what people try to are saying nowadays when they're in a in a meeting room to sound a, a little intelligent. Let's let's unpack that. <laughs> but, <laughs> is, that a, is that the new corporate speak? For I think now? it is. Yeah, I, I, I just come across not not at light, but I, I hear I I see it in other places. Um, uh, specifically the, the God particle and how it, uh, emanates this two, three pattern or three, two pattern. Do you, do you, um... Oh, I see what you're asking. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, I'm not a quantum physicist. Okay. But, but Neither actually <laughs> my, my Zen teacher studies quantum physics and we talk about this from time to time and I've read enough, you know, I, I kind of know what they're trying to look for, but there's a thing with quantum particles where they tend to cluster in these polarities of groups of three and groups of two. Um, it's, it's a very interesting pattern that, uh, that they see repeating. And what I find interesting about that is that when you look at the old African rhythms and, and the way that they've been brought to the new world and they've continued to evolve and, and take on these cu cultural ornamentations, you still see that three, two pattern in the, in what's called the clave. So clave is a subdivision of rhythm, and it's, it's deeply African, but it's also in Cuban and Caribbean music and Central American music, and, and pr pretty much all Latin music has it, but it's also in American rock and roll. It's sort of the same thing as like Bo Diddley's, you know, that dun 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 You can hear the three, the one, two, three. A one, two, a one, two, three, one, two. And then, I mean, if I had my drums here, I could play this stuff for you, but I'm, I don't, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in a bedroom. So the, uh, the thing that's interesting is that that three, two pattern has been in rhythms since 
before anybody can even remember. They're just embedded in the rhythms. And I find that very interesting that, that the earliest drummers are playing rhythmic patterns that mirror the subatomic fabric of the universe. And I'm not the first person to talk about this. I, this. I've seen this in books. I've heard other drummers talk about how interesting that subatomic particles are in threes and twos and all of our rhythms are built on threes and twos. And then you can also go through the time signatures and every time signature, you can find a three or a two in it. You know, so two, two time. Uh, I mean, in, in the sense that you can subdivide. So, so four, four, three, four, six, eight, 12, eight, they all have threes, threes and twos in them. They can all be subdivided. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating that the, you know, just to put it really simply, you know, there was a person or something that had a drum and they had to play it. And that's probably just inherently what they played because it's right. literally in the building blocks of everything that is, it, the world is made up of. And it makes yeah. total sense. It's, 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 it's remarkable. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the structure of the book. Um, because the way it differs from your first book, The Singing Earth, The Singing Earth seems to be more of a, a traditional autobiography. Um, would you agree with that? And then yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the way of the Zen cowboy, the newer book, is uh, it's broken up into about seven different categories, and each category contains about five various essays or stories. Um, was that intentional or how did you arrive at that structure? And did you have these stories laying around or did they arise because you <clears throat> made this outline or how did it all come together? Okay. There's kind of, there's two parts to this. So I, my first book, the singing earth, as you said, was, was this, uh, autobiography with a lot of ethnomusicologies. So I went around the world, um, over the course of 30 years of, of playing music and touring. And I visited all six continents except for Antarctica. And I wanted to write about the music that I experienced in all of those, you know, six continents, but about 14 different musical regions of the world that, that, are, that are big musical areas. So it was supposed to be both autobiographic, but also educational for people about this incredible world of music, all the stuff that's out there that you're never going to hear on the radio unless you are really adventurous and find a cool college radio station or some independent radio station, or you have an incredible record collection, which most people don't. So that's what that book was about. But there were a lot of like sub stories and side stories that I could have taken. And I just left them out because for brevity's sake, I just kind of kind of wanted that first book to be about music and the second book to just kind of be about storytelling. But the second part of the story is that we had a, a man elected as president in 2016, and I'm not going to say his name because I just, <laughs> I just refuse to say that name anymore. But I saw what a horrible example of a man he, he was, and I saw how it was affecting other men in this country and the, the abhorrent behavior that came out of our society because of his horrible example and how it, it, it gave legitimacy to men just being violent and racist and sexist and, and, and the bigotry and the misogyny. I, I was just utterly disgusted by, by that example. And I wanted to write a book that was about what we should be as men 
because I was, I was raised by, by great men. My father was a great man. I had, you know, family members that served in all branches of the military. So, you know, I came from, from essentially a military family that went back to my, to my grandfather in World War II and, and my brother and my cousins all served in, in, you know, in the army and the air force and the Navy. And, and, uh, and I, and I just, I remember the example of, of those, those generations of my grandfather, my father, um, and, you know, some of my best friends, as I said, are, are green berets and, and special forces. And I, I talk with those guys all the time. In fact, we're working on a book right now, like, of, of some of these guys about what it means to be an American man and a true patriot and the example of our forefathers and not this example of, of violence and, and ransacking the capital and, you know, this, this madness that has seized the country. So I just thought I'm going to write my stories and, and how I grew up and how I was raised and what it was like to grow up in the 1960s. And, well, I, I was born in the late 1960s, but I really grew up in the 1970s. And I wanted to talk about what that was like to be a kid in the 1970s and then come of age in the 1980s and then travel the world in the 1990s and, and really what it means to be a true American man and, and the way that we should give back to our country and give back to our communities and honor the, the different races and the different uh, spiritual practices and, and the truly amazing subcultures that are within the United States. So I was really like kind of possessed to write the book. I, I, there was like a one year period where I just wrote and wrote and wrote, and it was just story after story. And then I, I began to realize that it really did fit into these seven categories, you know, that, that you described. And I wanted, to, I wanted to show how an individual experience, can, how much it can shape the individual. But there's a process because you have to grow up. You have to become initiated. You have to go out into the world and have these experiences. And then you need to bring it back and you need to give back to your culture and to your country. You know, my dad was really, really influenced by, by JFK. Um, and he... Uh, he tells the story about how he was uh, he was going to his high school prom when JFK was assassinated and they canceled everything. But he always talked about how JFK said, you know, do ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. What can you give back? And we each have a, have our own talent in doing that. Some of us become teachers. Some of us become artists. Some of us become you know, statesmen or, 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 uh, or doctors, or, you know, there's just a myriad of things that a human being can do to give back to the country. And, and I think we've just gone so far off the spectrum where people just want to take and make these demands, but they don't give anything back. So that's why I wrote the book. Like, how, what can you do and how can you see the world in a way that, that you realize what your gifts are and how you can give that back to your own people. It's a hell of an answer. <laughs> well, I'm glad you did it. And um, if there is a silver lining of uh, this outgoing administration, it's that um, you know pieces of art and pieces of wisdom like these will begin to pop up. Um, I like hope so. You know, can I say one more thing too? 
please. One of the great things about being a musician, uh, or uh, at the at the uh, at the level of being able to to tour and like see the world, I I have personally seen all fifty states. Um, I've actually driven across them, and I'm counting Hawaii and and Alaska. I've I've actually driven across Alaska, but I've been in all fifty states. I've played in every major city and a lot of the smaller cities. And I've met people from every fabric of this, of this country, every religious belief, you know, from, you know, the conservative to the progressive, um, every walk of life. And I have actually spent a lot of time in the South because I did a lot of work in the Mississippi Delta with, with blues musicians and, and playing on other people's records. I love the South. I love the Delta. I love, I love the, um, the, the kind of polite genteelism of it, um, the, the interaction uh, of the musicians and, 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 and creating music and art that crosses uh, racial boundaries. Um, and, and actually, my dad's side of the family was from Arkansas, so half my family is from the South. So I often, you know, find myself defending the South when people want to talk about, you know, let's, you know, too conservative or it's, it's, you know, it's trying to overturn our democratic election or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, there's some people trying to do that, but you know, there's so many great people in the South that are really good people, really educated, love this country, love their families and their communities, love music, love great literature. Um, so, you know, that's what we have to remind ourselves and we have to get back to that in, in this country. We have to remind ourselves that there are, amazing people everywhere in every state every pocket of the country and we have to like pull that back together the seven categories in the book are spirit character music environment politics wisdom and soul um my next question was actually going to be about Mrs. the mississippi uh, delta experience yeah. recording uh, from the music section um you've worked with some really interesting uh, uh, characters down there one i got to see um play with you a few times um, and, uh, I was just, you know, I was wondering if you could elaborate on what you were just saying, you know, it, 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 you speak of, uh, just like how the, the, the place itself seems to lend itself to the quality of the music. There's something about the air. There's something about the soil. There's something about the history. Um, what was your experience when, when you went down to, to record some of these blue al uh, blues albums with, uh, really uh, some of the literal last men standing of the, the Mississippi Delta blues era. Well, I, I love the Mississippi Delta and I have spent weeks and months at a time down there, just driving around, exploring it, doing studio sessions in the, uh, uh, well, I've actually recorded in um, both Mississippi and uh, Arkansas. So, and then, you know, it's funny because when you get down there, the, the musicians, you know, they, they say the Mississippi Delta, but the Arkansans from Arkansas like to remind everybody, well, you know, the Mississippi River has two sides. One side's Mississippi, the other side's Arkansas. And they, you know, they, they're a little bit in, indignant if you don't include them in the Delta. Um, and it is just other, otherly wor otherworldly beautiful down there. When you, when you drive, you know, through the countryside and, you know, along the waterways, and if you go south into the bayous like you know go all the way to louisiana i mean it's just magical i love it down there when, and, was, the uh, time, uh, when was the first time that you went there 
Well, probably the first time I saw it would have been in the early 1990s on a Screaming Trees tour, you know, like the tour bus. We, we would stop. We, we did a lot of shows in the South, actually, um, in, in, the, in the early 90s. And so we always had, you know, we had to stop at a truck stop or, or maybe spend the night somewhere. And so I'd get like a brief glimpse of it. And then um, I think more, more in the early 2000s is when I started actually going there for recording sessions and would, would be there for you know, days and weeks at a time. And then I spent a lot of time consistently there from about 2012 through 2015. So three years where I was, because we, we were making a documentary film. So we were just down there doing filming and I was doing recording sessions and, and um, got, a, got a real immersion in, in the Mississippi Delta and all the music. Plus... By that time, I had finished graduate school where I'd been studying ethnomusicology and I'd studied a lot about American music and the history of American music and how it really like the, the, the nuclear point is is the Delta. You know, all popular American music is a branch of the Delta blues and everything that came after that. So. Really, what 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 happened was I I got recruited to play with C. Del Davis, who was literally the last living bluesman of that generation of Delta bluesmen that were born in the 1920s. And he died when he was 91 or 92. Um, and I worked with him for the last 20 years of his life. I worked on three different albums and he's the subject of this documentary film that we're finishing. Uh, I also played with ironing board, Sam, who was this incredible R and B singer uh, who was uh he might have been he might have been born in the 1930s, but I mean he's still from that original that original generation. And uh, I made a record with him that came out on the Fat Possum label. So I think what the Delta taught me was that uh, there is this magical connection between the landscape and the people that grew up there and how they interpreted music, and it was so powerful that it, it really is the nuclear moment that sparked everything that came after it in American popular music. So Delta blues sparked electric blues and ragtime and jazz and rhythm and blues and then rock and roll and country blues and country and hip hop. I mean, it's just, it just keeps going. It's like a fractal that keeps unfolding. So I wanted to just learn as much as I could about the guys and the men and women that were the originators of that. One of the uh, stories in here that, actually, to be to be frank with you, it frightened me, um, is titled "Gunfight." And um, oh yes, <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how. I mean, even though there's sort of a redeeming ending, I don't want to give any spoilers here. Um, there's a huge lesson to be learned here, and uh, I, yeah, if you're if you're comfortable enough to talk about it on, the, on, on here, I would love I would just love to hear a few words about that if you could. Well, it's, it's a hard story to talk about. And it, it's kind of like it was, I, it took me a long time to write it and decide to publish it. But uh, just the short version of it is that like I intervened in a domestic, a guy beating up his girlfriend and I, uh, I kicked his ass and then he pulled a gun. He pulled a shotgun and pointed a shotgun in my face and I thought I was dead, but the gun didn't go off. And, uh, and I, I survived you know, to, to get this far in life. But, um, 
that's kind of all I want to say about it. Like it's, it, I don't want to go into too much detail about, you know, the event itself, but I will say this, you know, like when you have a gun pointed in your face, you know, or, or at any part of your body, it, it's a very different feeling. And uh, it made me, I just, I, I realized that this country is just, it's just got too many guns, too many guns, too much violence, um, people willing to pull guns on each other rather than, you know, talk it out and uh, too many deaths and, and too much heartache um, because people have lost their children in classrooms and, and, um, you know, of course, and domestic violence is, is, is a big way that, that people are killed like that. Um, and like I said, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up with guns. I mean, I, I was comfortable with guns. I, I had guns as a kid and as a, as an adult man. And, uh, you know, my, my family were, were military, uh, they're veterans of, of wars, you know, like served honorably and, and, um, knew the power of what a weapon was, but, um, in the hands of, of civilians that are just too young and, and too untrained and, and, uh, that, that that has become a source for settling problems is is a great problem with this country we have we have to figure it out i don't know what the answer is i mean I, I i'm not i'm not dictating gun policy here um but i just know what it's like you know to to fight with somebody holding the gun another section um that i i really identified with is uh titled the uncle as high priestess and you can, you can, oh, i like the uncle as priestess part or sorry the, I, I, well, I was going to say uh, you can easily swap in the aunt as high priestess, priestess. <laughs> sure well it's the same archetype really sure, yeah you know, the, the uncle the aunt the cool uncle the cool aunt yes yes yeah, yeah before i ever had children I, I i guess i could call myself the cool uncle and uh, my my older sister had a, a few kids before i ever had children and uh i would go over there and um you know with no obligations outside of whatever i had going on and spend some quality time and then i got to leave and you know they had to stay with their kids and keep raising them and you know uh so i just love how uh, you know you you address this kind of as a person coming in with no children and uh you know as someone outside of the immediate inside the household family structure you can impart some sort of wisdom maybe that's a little different than what their their parents are imparting and maybe they look at you with a different through a different lens than they look at their parents uh because they're the uh you know the disciplinarians um how did you what what, what sparked this idea to write this it seemed a little bit different than uh the other things that you were writing about and i was uh not surprised to see it in there but it just it brought a little levity and uh and it struck a chord with me because i i have dealt with these very things okay so well the 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 background of of the uh what's called the avunculate okay the word avunculate is an anthropo anthropological term for the uh, the mother's oldest brother and it's it's a very interesting uh role to play in a family and it's this this role is found all over the world in indigenous cultures and you know non-indigenous just you know regular regular culture so the it's kind of like the oldest uh brother or oldest aunt um specifically on the mother's side of the family has kind of this power over 
their nieces and nephews because because you're you're, you're the you're not their father, so they, you know, they're they're not like afraid of you as like the father figure, but you're more like this outside um, role model that they kind of look to you like, you know, like oh yeah, my uncle Barrett, he, um, you know, he's a he's a rock musician and he plays all over the world and he does all this cool stuff, like like he's he's he probably knows something that I, that I need to know about, you know. And my, so my wife and I, neither of us had kids. We, we met later in life uh, and we, you know, immediately fell in love and got married. But, you know, we were too, too old to have kids and we just didn't have kids. But we both have large uh, extended, you know, we're godparents to some people. And, uh, you know, we, we, have, we have nieces and, and nephews and godchildren that we're all kind of, in a way, responsible to, to some degree. Sure. And so I found, you know, like anytime, you know, we had a family get together, you know, we kind of had this, we played these roles of, of like the outsider, but that had like a little bit of wisdom to share and, you know, kind of keep the, keep the humor level up and, you know, kind of sometimes intervene between the parents, (laughs) you know, and, and, and kind of be the referee of the family a little bit. It's, it's so anybody listening to this who they know exactly what I'm talking about. You're, you're the cool uncle, the cool aunt. You're the one with the great record collection. You're the one that t- says, hey, read this book. Read this, or wa- go watch this movie. It's an old classic. It was made before you were born, but you should watch it. It's funny you say that because I'm doing that very thing, not only with my kids, but my, my nephews are in their teens now. They're 16, 17 years old. So I'm going down this list, checking off certain films that they have to see. And right. uh, we've been doing this for about the last two years. And for what it's worth, I took the list that you provided and added them to my personal queue. It's like, oh man, I, I haven't still haven't seen The Seven Samurai. I got to get that. Oh out. yeah. Cross yeah. that off the list. <laughs> um, you know, and I, so there was a few records on there that like, like I, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 78. So, you know, I was 17 in 1995. I, I, I missed out on all that. Like I missed out on punk rock. Punk rock for me was like NWA. Uh, you know, when I heard that, I was like, whoa, I, you know, what is this? This is like total rebellion. Um, it's kind of the equivalent of, of punk. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it would be the, it would be the, you know, uh, it's, it's a different kind of music, but it had that energy behind it. Absolutely. And, you know, like I, so I did have my parents actually buy me uh, the Sex Pistols record when I was a little younger, but then they heard me listening to it and took it, they took it away from me. So by the time, <laughs> yeah. by the time I got to NWA, I, I realized I had to be listening with headphones so they could, they could have no idea what was going on. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but because of just that kind of the, the time frame that I was born, I, you know, I, I missed out on the replacements. I, that just something that just, you know, it, it went over my head. So just to see that on the, um, on the list was great. And then I love how you close that with every, every record, you know, just every record you can. <laughs> right. Every, every record by the Beatles, every record by the Rolling Stones, you know, yeah. you know, after I made that list, it took me, you know, I mean, it was exhaustive. And then I was like, all right, I got to stop. Cause you know, we're getting close to the publishing date. I have to just, and then I, I realized I can't believe I forgot, you know, like all these albums I should have included and films that I should have included. You know, you just remember all these things 
that you forgot to add, but you know, I was going to ask you if you had anything that was like really gnawing. Cause I knew, I knew that would be the case when you reviewed it. You're like, Oh my God, how did I leave off? You know, this yeah. miles. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't, I mean, now I can't remember, but I mean, I, I was doing that thing where I was going through all the great directors and all the films of the great directors and all the great bands. And, you know, I mean, I just did it as methodically as I could, but of course you forget things. It's just what happens. You know, I just want to say it again, the, the way of the Zen cowboy, fireside stories from a globetrotting rhythmatist. Um, I would encourage anyone, anyone, no matter what age, what sex, what background, just check it out. There's amazing stories, as you've heard here today. There's a lot more in the book. Um, you know, you've been all over the world and you're bringing people together with music. And, you know, what better way to communicate, uh, you know, I guess they say math is the universal language, but I, yeah. I would argue that it's music. Um, I agree with that. I think, I think what's interesting about music, you know, cause when I, when I went to graduate school to study ethnomusicology, the first thing they tell you is that music is universal. The second thing they say is like, there's no universal that you can apply to all the different kinds of music. It's all different all over the world. And it, manifest differently in all the, you know, every culture manifests differently with the ornamentation of their culture. But what is universal is that everybody does music. Thank you, Barrett Martin. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. Thank you to our guest host, Jim Lane. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, and even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.